important thing about HPPodcraft.com. I never could stomach all the damn vampires. It's strange, he said. Do you see that little mound just on this side of the boulder? Yes, I said, and I guessed what was coming. It looks like a grave, observed Holger. Very true. It does look like a grave. Yes, continued my friend, his eyes still fixed on the spot. But the strange thing is that I see the body lying on the top of it. Of course, continued Holger, turning his head on one side, as artists do. It must be an effect of light. In the first place, it is not a grave at all. Secondly, if it were, the body would be inside and not outside. Therefore, it's an effect of the moonlight. Don't you see it? Perfectly. I always see it on moonlit nights. It doesn't seem to interest you much, said Holger. On the contrary, it does interest me, though I am used to it. You're not so far wrong, either. The mound is really a grave. Ooh, I'm chilled. That was from the beginning of F. Marion Crawford's For the Blood is the Life, a story H.P. Lovecraft mentions in his essay, Supernatural Horror and Literature. So we are talking about it here today on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We are at hppodcraft.com and you are tuned in to the free show. Every month we do one free show and if you wish to subscribe, you can get three additional shows every month. That's right. Uh, who was the reader that we just heard there? The delightful, the enchanting, Greg Johnson. Ah, glad to hear from him once again. You know, I've watched that short that you and Greg did like a million times. It's so funny. It's pretty good. I'm pretty happy with it. I love it so much. Not only is it me and Greg that put that thing together, we've got Andrew Lehman. That's right. He's the voice of Harley Warren in the very beginning of it. The music is by Reber Clark. Some Lovecraftian luminaries in the (laughs) cinematic world have participated in that cute little short of ours. The ordeal of Randolph Carter. We will, of course, link out to it in the show notes. The title of the story, For the Blood is the Life, I feel like I've heard that before. Maybe you have. I don't know. Are you a biblical scholar of some kind? Mm, I wouldn't say a scholar. I'm, <laughs> I'm somewhat familiar. <laughs> it's from Deuteronomy 12.23. Only be sure that thou eat not the blood, for the blood is the life, and thou mayest not eat the life with the flesh. God really had a lot of rules about eating. Yeah. Here you go. These are things that you can't eat. I'm just going to give you, okay, okay. catfish, lobsters, crabs. Oh, boo. Stop it. Catfish and lobsters. Stop. <laughs> crabs. Ah. Oh, Rabbits. So good. Pigs, eagles, vultures, buzzards, falcons, ravens, ostriches, owls, seagulls, hawks, jackdaws, which are like crows, storks, mm-hmm. and herons. All bugs are off the table except for locusts, grasshoppers, and crickets. Oh, that's good. Strangely enough, though, there is no specific rule against cannibalism, Hmm. though it does seem to be frowned on in the Bible. Thou shalt not eat up on the booty. (laughs) However, there is a rule against drinking of human blood. And I think that diabolical act is where we get the title of the story. Deuteronomy is really my favorite Old Testament chapter. (laughs) (laughs) It's got all the craziest rules in it. I love that one. It says straight up in that chapter, kill anybody with a different religion, which is one of my favorite (laughs) rules. Uh, There's also a part, there's a verse that says, if two men are fighting with each other Uh and the wife of one tries to interfere by grabbing the opponent by the balls, Uh she will have her hand cut off. This was a big enough issue in biblical times (laughs) that it needed to be addressed in this chapter. Right. These ladies need to quit grabbing people's balls. Look, I want to punch Scott too, but not as long as he's married to Nut Clutch and Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> Something's got to be done about her. Get it in the book. Yeah.
We've uh, talked about Francis Marion Crawford before on the show uh, yes. with his story, The Upper Birth. Quick recap about him. He's an American author. He was born in 1854 and died in 1909. He was born in Italy, where the story takes place, but his parents were both Americans. His dad was a sculptor, and if you want to get into the sculpting gig, Italy is the place. Yeah, that's where you go. And Mr. Crawford wrote a bunch of short stories and novels, and, yeah. uh, you know, he was awesome. Aside from The Upper Birth, we've covered The Screaming Skull. I don't think we liked that one so much. No, we we also so. covered The Dead Smile, which was his. Yeah. And that still sticks with me. I liked that story quite a lot. That was a good one, yeah. This story appeared in the posthumous collection of Crawford's Weird Tales, which was called Uncanny Tales. Pretty yeah. successful writer, and Lovecraft liked him, and he said this about this story. For the blood is the life touches powerfully on a case of moon-cursed vampirism near an ancient tower on the rocks of a lonely South Italian seacoast. Nice. Good synopsis, Lovecraft. So we're done. Uh, I'd like to thank our reader. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm glad that there's some vampirism in here because it is March. And as you know, March is for Draculas. March is for Draculas! And this biblical quote... For the title there, we also heard that used in the novel Dracula when we covered that. Renfield repeats, the blood is the life over and over in that book. So the story starts off with our narrator having dinner with his artist friend, Holger, on the roof of an old tower, now the home of the narrator. The tower was once used to fend off pirates, but that was a long time ago. Yes, uh, and as you said, we're in Italy, southern Italy. The tower was built in the 16th century. It's very old. There's not many of them left. The unnamed narrator is kind of weird about why he owns it. He writes, How it came into my possession ten years ago and why I spent a part of each year in it are matters which do not concern this tale. <laughs> so, all right, man. <laughs> no, wait, that's your emphasis on the way it was read. Well, I just it came off a little snotty to me. <laughs> you can read it this way. Uh-huh. And why I spent part of each year in it are matters which do not concern this tale. It has nothing to do with the vampires, so mm-hmm. let's just skip past it. Who cares? That's okay. Because the answer is his father. Well, it's not, it's not his father. It's his stepfather. Okay, I get it. I get it. <laughs> he has it from April to June, and then what? so he doesn't want to be there when his stepfather's there because it makes it really uncomfortable. This is a timeshare tower. That's what he was saying. He wasn't saying like it does not concern you. I think that's. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess I just had a, a, a bitchier tone in, in my head when I was reading. Yeah, you did. From the tower, the artist friend, Holger, is looking down at the beach, and he sees what he thinks is a body lying near a stone, which kind of looks like a grave. The narrator says it's nothing, but Holger wants to see for himself. Right, the narrator knows there's not a body lying on the grave, because he says, well, I've walked down there to see before. It's an effect of the moonlight, but he says the strange thing is the moon can be shining from any direction on the mound, and the body will appear. It's not just a certain kind of moon or the moon has to be in a certain position. If the moon's out at all, you will see this body on the mount. There's this really great bit here where Holger makes his way down there. He's kind of climbing down the the side of the hill, looking at the body as he goes, because the narrator's telling the story. He says he sees him walking. He stops, and then he kind of takes a few steps back, and then he takes a few steps forward and a few steps back, and then he walks back down. Yeah. So the narrator knows, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, that's because it, it becomes invisible at that point. Right. Like once you get close to it, you can't see it anymore. And he just found that. He's been down there and done it. So he knows there's that threshold where the thing just suddenly disappears. So when Holger reaches the mound, he stands on it. And the narrator could see that the body is no longer lying there. The corpse that looks like it's lying on the on the mound. Mm-hmm. But it's on its knees and it's wrapped its arms around Holger's legs. Right. As he stood there looking around, obviously not seeing this thing, it was kind of pulling itself up almost to try and stand. Mm-hmm. And the narrator yells at him. He goes, come along. Don't stay there all night. As Holger walks away, the creature tries to hold on, but it's like its feet are stuck to the ground and it just drops. 
Mm-hmm. And Holger, as he gets out of the creature's grasp, you can see him kind of shudder. But then he continues walking. Yeah, it's really a creepy scene. The thing lengthens like a wreath of mist trying to keep its hold on Holger as he walks yeah. away. And when he gives the shiver, I think that's when the thing breaks. And and there's this little wail of pain that's carried up on the breeze. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and the narrator, yes, he, he's felt that shiver before when he's gone down to see the thing. But what's so creepy about it is the same thing was clutching him as he walked up. Yeah. But he didn't know it until he's seen it happen to somebody else. Yeah. So uh-huh. when Holger comes back, he says he felt like he wanted to look back after he left, like something was behind him. But he resisted the urge. And then Holger says, you might make a story about that. And the narrator says, fool, there already is a story about that. And if you aren't too much of a sleepy baby, then I'll tell you the story. <laughs> you know, Piper, you kind of sound a little tired. Are you sleepy? No, I'm not sleepy. Do you need to take a nap? You might be sleepy. You sound I'm not a little, sleepy. little sleepy to me. You sound, you sound sleepy. Boy, wow. Look at now you're getting grumpy about it. But don't, I'm not getting, I'm, I'm not grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> so Holger finally says he's not sleepy and then he goes into the story. There's this guy, Adario, who the narrator says Holger will remember. So this isn't a very old story, but this guy, he was a dirty merchant. He swindled people in South America. Then he moved back to Italy when he got caught. He was selling sham jewelry. And I know that probably means he was passing off fake precious stones, but I'd like to think that he was selling friendship bracelets. (laughs) And then he had to make a run for it when people found out he just wasn't actually a very good friend. Like never returned anybody's books. He couldn't keep a secret. He was never around when somebody needed help moving. Yeah. Like, hey, these friendship bracelets are bull roar. And then he's like, I'm out of (laughs) here. Adario has managed to make a lot of money before he came back. He is a man of influence in this small village. Yeah. And he has the son, Angelo, who is also very good looking, but not very smart. All the well-off girls in town wanted to marry him. And he was engaged to this one girl whose father was the richest man in the whole village. Mm-hmm. Adario had a couple of shady guys he brought back with him. Well, there's no, there aren't any masons in the town and he wants to expand his house. So he picked these guys up to, to do some work for him. That's what he's telling people. Yeah. Their descriptions are a Neapolitan who had lost one eye and a Sicilian with an old scar half an inch deep across his left cheek. Right. So they're disfigured. So naturally they're shifty and, and somewhat morally corrupt. Of course, yeah. Of course. But you know what I do have to say? Yesterday I was reading an article about the Hero Child Rescue Corps, which is this really cool program in the States where they'll take injured veterans and they give them training to hunt pedophiles who are actively abusing children. Okay. So it's just a chance for these guys to keep fighting the bad guys when they've returned from the wars. But the focus of the article was on this one guy, Sergeant Tom Block, really cool dude, who was injured by a suicide bomber in Afghanistan. He lost an eye. See, you can be missing an eye and be a hero. You don't have to be a shifty workman. Okay. (laughs) But this is the thing that I found a little weird, though. This is why I'm bringing it up. He replaced the missing eye with a prosthetic that has Captain America's shield on it. Whoa. So his right (laughs) eye is just the shield. (laughs) And he's like, hey, Captain America doesn't like bullies, and I don't like bullies either, which is, okay, awesome. Sure. But the thing is, at the end of the article, it says he hopes one day, you know, when they're rescuing a frightened child, he can point to the shield and it'll comfort the child. And I'm like looking at a picture of the guy and I was like, no way. No, this does not look comforting, dude. You look like a cyborg from the future. Like if you see the photo, I think it would look really cool and scary for the bad guy. The bad guy might be like, oh, shit, this dude's got a Captain America shield in his head. But yeah. for the kid, it's going to be scary no matter it, who No, wants. it's because it's got a white star in the middle. So instead of a pupil, you would have a white star. Yeah. 
in your red and blue eye. Yeah, it's not comforting, man. No, that is really freaky. And that was a heck of a tangent, Fiverr. Good job. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What was on my mind? Because I read the article uh, yesterday and I thought it was a cool program. But anyway, so uh, Dario's got these two disfigured henchmen. Actually, he introduced him as a Dario. Uh-huh. And then he starts switching him to calling to calling him a Lario for the rest of the story. And I thought, is that a typo? But I looked the story up in a couple of different places and all of them had this. So it's a weird switch. Anyway, there's also this girl. Her name's Christina. And she's very attractive. But she is a gypsy. You know, she's got dark hair and mm-hmm. she's poor. That's all they really know. You know, they don't really say it. They just call her a gypsy. I don't know if she's actually a gypsy or not. Yeah. She really liked Angelo a bunch. And she was, I guess, in love with him. Yeah. But Angelo was actually really into his fiance and he didn't give her the time of day. Christina is around town and she does odd jobs around for people. So she's not like if people like her enough, you know, they're not they don't treat her poorly. She she does errands and wherever she can find work, whatever she can do. I don't know why Angela wasn't into her, because in the description, it says Christina was built like a greyhound (laughs) (laughs) to me. I don't know about you. But nothing says sexy like a greyhound. <laughs> Those dogs are banging, dude. Oh, come on. She especially tries to do odd jobs at old Adario's house because that's where Angelo's going to be. And Angelo, he's kind of built like a hot Rottweiler. Alario now, I guess, uh, gets really sick and he's dying. They send Christina out to the neighboring town to get a doctor. Yeah, because this town, like, not only do they not have masons, they don't have a doctor. They don't have any police. The Taco Bell is also a pizza hut. She doesn't get back in time. He dies. There's a cool bit in the story here I, I liked where he talks about how everyone's in there around him as he, as he lies dying in bed. And then once he passes, everybody just gets out of the room. Yeah. Like there's this fear of death. But the two creepy guys sneak back in and they drag this big box out from under Ardaria's bed and then they sneak out. Of course, because there's no bank in town. So he's got to keep his treasure in a big box under the bed. Well, yeah, I wonder if... Two, there's something about like miserly guys that don't trust banks Mm -hmm. and they keep all their stuff buried. Right. Maybe there is a bank and he just doesn't trust him because he's a miserly, beefy kind of guy. Yeah. They get the box out of the house without anyone catching them. Then they get it down to that spot on the beach, the creepy spot. Right. Where they bury it. Now, the doctor that Christina went to summon, he's gone on business elsewhere. So he's not in that other town. No luck. She comes back. It's too bad because if she'd been with the doctor, she would have taken the long road. But since he's not with her, she takes a shortcut and she comes right across these guys as they're burying the treasure. Uh, They see her. She sees them. They know they're in trouble. So bonk, the clocker on the head. Kill her right there. And they bury her with the treasure. Poor girl. Then they make their way back to Ilario's house. And nobody's the wiser that they Mm -hmm. had run out and done that. However, Ilario's got one woman servant who did know that there was the box under the bed. She's the only one that actually knew about it. Mm Mm-hmm. And she's discovered that it's missing. Uh, It says she came back with two hideous old hags who are always called in for burial prep. I was kind of curious about those characters. Why why are they called hags? I don't know. They're hideous old hags. Why is he being mean to them? They take care of dead people. That is a valuable service. I agree. Well, it sounds like he's a little judgmental about people and their appearance. And that is not cool. I agree, man. Let's quit. I don't want to read the story anymore. (laughs) It's offensive. (laughs) She doesn't want the old hags to know where the treasure is, so she, like, drops something and pretends she's looking for it. Peeps under the bed, and that treasure chest is gone. So she knows that it's been stolen. Like I say, there aren't any cops in the town, so she just runs off through the streets screaming that her master's house has been robbed. And a lot of people are like, oh, shut up, you probably did it. They suspect her. But the father of the girl that Angela is supposed to marry is keenly interested, and he says, you know who I think did it? Those two disfigured bozos who were supposed to be working on the house. I think that's who robbed him. 
and he gets up a posse. They find the men in the carpenter's workshop where they're having a drink over the coffin that mm-hmm. the, the, the carpenter's making for Ilaria. And once they know that you know, this posse's on to them. The two men look at each other, and then with, it says, without the slightest hesitation, they put out the single light, seized the unfinished coffin between them, and using it as a sort of battering ram, dashed upon their assailants in the dark. In a few moments, they were beyond pursuit. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a pretty cool escape, pushing a coffin into folks. Yeah. Well, they get away, nobody finds the money, and Angelo is now totally broke. That was his fortune. Without this inheritance, there's no way that this guy's going to let him marry his daughter. So no bride anymore. He's now left to live alone. Just him up in the tower. Probably has a few copies of Dog Fancy magazine and that's it. No bride. (laughs) That is in relation to the Greyhound comment earlier. Yes, that was a callback. Is that your implication? (laughs) That is my implication. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Poor Christina, since she's of such little status, nobody even really notices that she doesn't come back for days. Yeah. Uh, But when they do miss her, they're all like, oh, she probably ran off with the thieves. She would be a thieving gypsy, just as we expected. So that's the first, that's the end of the first part of the story. Now the narrator tells the second part. Nobody really misses old Ilario, partially because he was always in South America selling friendship bracelets. So they didn't really get to know him too well. Yeah. But Angelo is a broke sucker, and he's he's actually, you know, this tower that he lives in is going to be seized at some point. Yeah. Because he can't afford, I don't know, property taxes or whatever. It's pretty sad. When he was, when when Ilaria was alive and he had his treasure, you know, all the dads had invited Angelo over mm-hmm. to meet their daughters. But now he's laughed at because he's lost his inheritance. Yeah. Those villagers are serving Angelo some cold lunch, man. They're <laughs> laughing at him. <laughs> I know. His misfortune. And he was a reasonably nice guy, as yeah. the story goes. I mean, he was not very bright, but he was still nice. And I don't think he deserved that. It says, instead of hanging out with the other guys his age in front of the church after work, he goes out wandering in lonely places. But like that idea of all the young guys hanging out in front of the church, like smoking, <laughs> doing some graffiti, you know, wolf whistling chicks. Yeah. Another side story I want to know about. But something strange happens when Angelo's out wandering. But in those lonely twilight hours, he began to have strange waking dreams. He was not always alone, for often when he sat on the stump of a tree where the narrow path turns down the gorge, he was sure that a woman came up noiselessly over the rough stones as if her feet were bare, and she stood under a clump of chestnut trees only half a dozen yards down the path and beckoned to him without speaking. Though she was in the shadow, he knew that her lips were red, and that when they parted a little and smiled at him, she showed two small, sharp teeth. He knew this at first, rather than saw it, and he knew that it was Christina, and that she was dead. Yet he was not afraid. He only wondered whether it was a dream, for he thought that, if he had been awake, he should have been frightened. Besides, the dead woman had red lips, and that could only happen in a dream. Whenever he went near the gorge after sunset, she was already there, waiting for him, or else she very soon appeared, and he began to be sure of her blood-red mouth. But now each feature grew distinct, and the pale face looked at him with deep and hungry eyes. Little by little, he came to know that someday the dream would not end when he turned away to go home, but would lead him down the gorge out of which the vision rose. She was nearer now when she beckoned to him. Her cheeks were not livid like those of the dead, but pale with starvation, with the furious and unappeased physical hunger of her eyes that devoured him. They feasted on his soul and cast a spell over him, and at last they were close to his own and held him. He could not tell whether her breath was hot as fire or cold as ice. He could not tell whether her red lips burned his or froze them, 
or whether her five fingers on his wrists seared scorching scars or bit his flesh like frost. He could not tell whether he was awake or asleep, whether she was alive or dead. But he knew that she loved him, she alone of all creatures, earthly or unearthly, and her spell had power over him. So it's Christina, right? Yeah. So after that first encounter, he wakes up alone. He's all weak. Yeah. Fear seizes him because he knows that he's been getting drunk on, I think. He springs to his feet, flees the gorge. He doesn't even look back until he reaches the door of his house. And he goes to work. And that night, he's like, I'm going to go home. I'm going to sleep in my bed like a Christian man. But as he's headed home, he stands at this fork in the road. One leads down to the village. One leads down to the gorge. He's standing there trying to pray to himself. But then he says her name, Christina, and he's in a trance again. He can't avoid it. She appears beside him, and they glide down to the mouth. He feels her kisses on his throat, and he knows that her lips are red. I mean, she's drinking his blood as he walks. And again, he wakes up at dawn, alone, laying on top of that thing, all thirsty and horrified, but there's nothing he can do about this. Bad girls have uh, an allure like that, you know, where you're like, <laughs> oh, it's no good for me. You know, I'm done. I'm breaking up with her. It's over. Yeah. And then... Next night, he's right back there again. Yeah, I'm not calling her tonight. <laughs> I did kind of like that aspect of it, that every morning you wake up, I'm not doing that again. I'm not doing it. And then at night, ah, what am I doing? Yeah, well, so he's stuck. And this keeps happening to him over and over again. Meanwhile, this guy, Antonio, another ah uh, name. I know. Who takes care of the tower now for the narrator. He returns to the town. He's missed everything. He's missed uh, the dad dying, this guy getting all the money stolen. He's missed the whole thing. So he, he gets caught up on what's going on. And he's the guy that actually told the narrator this story directly. So right. it's not a friend of a friend thing. The narrator is going, I know the guy that dealt with this thing, and I'm going to tell yeah. you how he did. Right. So Antonio, he is back. He goes to sleep in the tower. He wakes up, looks down, and he sees the thing on the mound drinking Angelo's blood. And it freaks him out. Right. Of course it freaks him out. Of course it would. <laughs> so during the day, there is nothing there. You know, he doesn't see anything strange. So he just decides it's time to go talk to the priest. Mm -hmm. And he says, uh, I have seen an evil thing this night. I have seen how the dead drink the blood of the living and the blood is the life. The priest is like, check it out. I've read all the books. I know how to handle this. Yes. This is the Van Helsing, Peter Vincent character. I can only assume he's played by <laughs> Riley McDowell in this story. <laughs> and they're getting geared up to fight vampires at this yes. point, which is one of my favorite things. Yes. Did you ever put together your own vampire kit? I had a wooden stake. Yeah, I had a wooden stake. That I whittled myself. Mm -hmm. And then I did have a cross that I kept them together. But I didn't have a hammer, <laughs> so I don't know what I was thinking. You'd use the cross to hammer the stake in, I guess. Mm, it wasn't that big of a cross. It was kind of more of a small pendant kind of cross. But yeah, I did. Of course <laughs> you did. I You asked this question. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I whittled a wooden stake and I had it hanging on the wall in my bedroom. I remember oh, that right. going up. I remember and, that. And my dad just looking at it like, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> just... Just breathing a heavy sigh of disappointment. Like, what, what is going on? I don't know where to begin. I just don't even know what's up with this kid. <laughs> he goes up to get the priest. They've got the, a wicker basket, and in, in that they've got a holy water, the stole that the priest will need. They come down and they wait in the shadow of the tower for night to come. Mm -hmm. And then, boom, they see him. There's the happy couple. It's Angelo and Christina. They're walking along. She's kissing his neck drinking his blood yeah they're pretty freaked out by this antonio's got some some good booze 
strong liquor. So he pours a draft, and, and they have a drink of that. I don't know if the priest does, but he does. He's definitely ready to go. Antonio says that in spite of the rum, his own knees shook together, and the priest stumbled over his Latin. For when they were yet a few yards from the mound, the flickering light of the lantern fell upon Angelo's white face, unconscious as if in sleep, and on his upturned throat, over which a very thin red line of blood trickled down into his collar, and the flickering light of the lantern played upon another face that looked up from the feast, upon two deep, dead eyes that saw in spite of death, upon parted lips redder than life itself, upon two gleaming teeth on which glistened a rosy drop. Then the priest, good old man, shut his eyes tight and showered holy water before him, and his cracked voice rose almost to a scream. And then Antonio, who is no coward after all, raised his pick in one hand and the lantern in the other as he sprang forward, not knowing what the end should be. And then he swears that he heard a woman's cry, and the thing was gone. And Angelo lay alone on the mound unconscious, with the red line on his throat and the beads of deathly sweat on his cold forehead. They get Angelo off to the side. Antonio starts digging into the grave, and he finishes up and stoops down with his lantern, and what he sees down there, within a month, turns his hair gray as a badger, it says. Gray as a badger. I love it when people's hair turn white when they see something scary. And he loves comparing him to a badger, too. He uses that phrase a couple of times. He's gray as a badger. Why a badger? Badgers, also sexy animals. He had never seen what he had saw that night, that thing which is neither alive nor dead, that thing that will abide neither above ground nor in the grave. Yes. And Antonio, I don't know why he knew to do this, but he's brought a wooden stake with him. The priests seem to be the expert, but it's Antonio that's got the stake. The priest sees him go down into the grave with it. He hears him breathing heavily, and, and he hears these noises like he's struggling with something as powerful as him. And then there's this awful woman's shriek. Antonio throws the chest up and over with the treasure in it. He gets out all covered with blood, and he fills the grave in. And that's the end of the narrator's story. So, Angelo got his own again, he said. Did he marry the prim and plump young person to whom he had been betrothed? No, he had been badly frightened. He went to South America and has not been heard of since. And that poor thing's body is still there, I suppose, said Holger. Is it quite dead yet, I wonder? I wonder too, but whether it be dead or alive, I should hardly care to see it, even in broad daylight. Antonio is as grey as a badger, and he has never been quite the same man since that night. (laughs) And And that's the end of the story, the moral being that it's shameful to be grey as a badger. That is a great moral. One thing that I wonder about, though, is how we don't know what Antonio saw. However, Antonio is the one that was told our narrator the story. Yes. That's a little weird. That is a little weird. It shifted to the priest's perspective in that moment. Is that the narrator taking artistic license in his storytelling, or is that just kind of sloppy (laughs) storytelling? No, I actually, I think it is, because the narrator at one point said, because earlier he recounts what the two men did. They stole the treasure, and they went, and they buried it, and he actually says, nobody saw them do this. Yeah. I'm just inferring what happened. He's conscious of the fact that he's telling a story, so he's filling in details here and there to make it flow like a story. So, I, I yeah, I think it's a choice the narrator made. But what's the point of this story overall, do you think? I mean, is it a metaphor for anything? Is it about something? Or is it just a simple vampire folktale? Because, you know, Dracula would have already been out by this point. It seems like a, a, a simple tale. The one thing that I connect to in the story seems to be the idea that there are some people that are bad for you, and yet you still go back 
to them. Yeah. <laughs> because they they give you something. Like he was kind of in a bad place. He was a lonely guy and he just needed some something from somebody, even though they were taking advantage of him ultimately. So it could be maybe about that. But that's a whole lot of weird tale crime thriller to get to that portion of the story yeah well you know what's interesting to me about this is and you think about dracula and lucy similar kind of thing where she's leaving the grave at night of course she's stealing babies and things like that isn't she the men were attracted to lucy you could see why they could have fallen under her spell as a vampire but what's interesting here is that christina she's a cast off of the whole town and angelo in particular was not interested in her he was happy with the wife he was going to get in the end she wins she takes from him yeah. She doesn't win because she gets killed, but. Well, she doesn't really get killed. That's the. Because there's something still down there on that grave. So, like the ghost of a vampire. This vampire is definitely one of those kind of more spectral vampires. It's it's right. sort of physical, but not really physical. It seeps into the ground it, and it kind of hovers around him and drinks on him while he walks. And it, to me, it seemed more ethereal and less physical, mm-hmm. which a lot of vampire myths vampires are like that like they during the night they would come out of the ground they would just like a mist and i mean dracula could turn into mist and stuff as well and i think maybe she was stopped for a while but obviously something's still there it could be the ghost of the vampire which would be i guess cool (laughs) of course it's cool the ghost of any monster is cool But it just is like a watered down version of the monster. Yeah, I guess so. Because it can't do what it could, all the cool stuff it could do before. Because it's it gives, a ghost. It now. gives you little hugs. Yeah, I don't know what it. Yeah, you're right. I don't know. Well, we don't know what it could do. And that's kind of a cool, weird element to it, where it seems like it's a vampire story, but there's some other strange things that go on that aren't ever really explained. Well, I feel like that there is definitely a feminist reading of the story mm-hmm. that I'm having a hard time articulating or wrapping my head around. So mm-hmm. maybe a listener can articulate it. <laughs> yeah, some outside help may be necessary. And an economic reading of it too, because it's interesting. When the boy is wealthy, everybody wants him. When he loses mm-hmm. money, nobody wants him. But then the woman who he cast off is there for him. She takes everything that he has. Yeah, and that, and that might possibly be the case. And if any of our listeners happen to get it better than we do, we would love to hear your feedback on Facebook or on Twitter. But on the whole, you like you liked the story. I did enjoy the story. It's it's a quick read. It's it's pretty neat. I like the crime element of it. It is just the beginning of Marches for Dracula's. That's right. What are we getting into next week? Next week we're going to tackle a story that we've been threatening to cover for quite some time. Sheridan Lafanu's Carmilla or Carmilla. We'll decide. I don't know. So Carmilla or Carmilla. Yeah, we've got to do the research and find out because you know a lot of times in I think it's Spanish and Italian double L is. E. Or maybe you're supposed to say both of the L's. It's Carmilla-la. <laughs> Carmilla-la. I think that's what it is. Anyway, so that's what we're going to be covering. It's going to, it's a longer story, so we're going to take some time on it. And I want to thank our reader, Greg Johnson. He is a talented reader, but also a talented performer. And you can check him out at YouTube Greg Johnson. That's G-R-E-I-G Johnson. Check him out. Check out the, the Ordeal of Randolph Carter, which features my voice and my writing with Greg. I think it's funny. I agree. And also, uh, it's got Andrew Lehman and music by Rupert Clark. It's super fun. Go check it out. And that's all we have for this week. We'll be back with Carmilla. I am Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We are at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Bye.